This is October the 2nd, 2016, lecture discussion number 255 on the book of Romans, otherwise known as Revelation chapters 5, 9, 11, 12, 13, 16, and 17. Same thing, along with Daniel chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. I got a letter from Norman in Tennessee that is particularly appropriate. Please use this donation however best you see, see fit to meet the chapel's needs. Thank you, uh, Norman. But make sure Pastor Steve has enough medicine. Pizza and fried chicken to keep the motor running. Just like my 1998 Ford pickup. The more miles, the more fuel and maintenance he will need. All true. I am hoping for 300,000 miles on my Ford, 1998 Ford pickup. Might it be too much to expect for that many Roman studies? <laughs> I, for one, would be thrilled. Norman from Tennessee. And I thought that was funny. Yes. We're at 200 and what are we? 255. How many years is that? That's, we're over five years on Romans. <laughs> I get a lot of those, uh, but that was one of the best. Okay, where, where, where are we at? This subject is, of course, Revelation 17, 16, 13, 12, all of those. This is the time of Jacob's trouble, Jacob being the nation of Israel. Jacob is the nation of Israel, and the trouble, therefore, is the tribulational period. It is the final seven years. Uh, I'll do this in a second. I'll, uh, those of you who want to study the, the 490 years or the 77s, the best work done on that, in my view, still remains Clarence Larkin. He, he figured out there were four 490-year periods or, or four 77s. And Christ came and sacrificed himself at year 483 of the fourth 490-year period, if that makes sense which means that there are seven years unaccounted for, seven years remain. And that is Daniel 9, 20 through 27, something that we will be reviewing again, re-reviewing, to be more precise. I've covered it quite a few times over the years. But the prophecies of Ezekiel, with the prophecies of Ezekiel 38 being so near, it's not going to be hurtful to address the main points one more time. So we're going to do it just because I think it is now much more uh, prevalent than it has ever been in history. So now is the time to do this subject more so than any other time in my life, for sure. So feel free to read ahead. Daniel 9 is on the docket soon, which is a relative term, a frame of reference, a place of observation, as you all know. Anyway, between the 483 year or the year 483 of the fourth 490-year period and the final seven years. So I've had the 483 of the fourth 490, and I haven't yet had the final seven years. In between the 483 and the final seven is what's called the great parentheses, the gathering of the bride. That's where we are now. I'll diagram it. I'm looking at you. It's hilarious. <laughs> but it'll make sense because I'm so good at diagrams. 
But in between the 483 and the final seven years is the, uh, is, the, is the gathering of the bride, which is the church of Jesus Christ. And when this collecting of the bride concludes, followed by the confirmation of the peace accord between Israel and its em- enemies, when, when this confirmation, this attestation of this peace accord is performed by the Antichrist, there's a confirmation I'm sorry, there's a peace accord, but the Antichrist is the one that establishes it. When he does that, he's also the idol, not idol as in most teenage boys, but idol shepherd. He is the idol shepherd of Zechariah 12. When, when he does this, then the final seven years that are missing from the fourth 490, they begin. That may not make sense, but just a second. Now, make no mistake, by final seven years, I am referring to the remaining seven years of that fourth 490-year period, not the final years, final seven years of the world, because we still have the thousand-year reign of Christ as Messiah. The Messianic kingdom comes after the tribulation, so obviously these final seven years are not final final. They're just merely final. Got that? Good. So, let me put it in a timeline for you. Uh, what's that noise? That comes from doing roofing at my age. I have 77s. So I have 7s and there's 70 of them. That's going to equal 490. So that's where the 490 comes from. Clarence Larkin found that there were four of these 490s, and back in 1910 or so, he made a diagram of them. Uh, And he explained why they're 490-year periods so that you can figure out how God counts 490. He doesn't count the same as us. He pays attention to things like captivity periods that that he... uh, utilizes when he arrives at 490. Larkin's work was phenomenal. He's by himself somewhere in Pennsylvania. I think. I'm not sure where he was, but uh, he, had a, he was a, an architect by trade. So, I have 77s and I have four of them. So they go in order, so think of it this way. I have a 490, I have another 490, I have another 490, and I didn't get to 490 because something stopped me from getting to 490. I only got to 483. So there's seven years missing. Between the 483 and the seven years is what we call the great parentheses, or the gathering of the bride. That's what we're in now. And that has so far lasted almost 2,000 years. Then comes the last seven-year period of the 77. So I have four 77s, and the last seven are the final seven of the 77s will occur. The final seven years. That is what we call the time of Jacob's trouble or the tribulational period. And those seven years have not yet have yet to transpire. So when and the bride of Christ is in what's called readiness. She is waiting. That is the church. She is waiting for the bridegroom's return. 
during this period. So there's a gathering aspect to it, and there's also a waiting aspect of it. It's part of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony, as you all know. So when the idol shepherd shows up, what he does, he guarantees, he's the wicked shepherd, he's the beast, he establishes, he guarantees the peace accord with the woman who gave birth to the male child in Revelation, uh, in the book of Revelation. That's the nation of Israel. So he makes, the idle shepherd comes and makes a peace accord, a covenant, a treaty, if you will, with the nation of Israel. And then once that happens, once that confirmation is made, that activates those final seven years. So that is what starts the seven-year period. It's not uh, the rapture. It's not Ezekiel 38. It's not the appearance of the Antichrist. It is when this accord is established, confirmed. That's when those final seven years, at the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation uh, occurs. And they are, again, the seven years of the tribulation. And this, of course, is the time that Satan and his seed, and it's important to know that the idol is the Genesis 3.15 seed of the serpent. That's who he is. He's also the beast. He's also the man of sin. He's the Antichrist, idol shepherd, all of those things. He has many names. So, this is the time... Uh, that the seed of the serpent has until the Passover lamb of God returns as king, or the seed of the woman. And now you know the seed of the woman is referring to Israel. She is the one with the male child that the Antichrist and Satan try to do. So Satan knows this. He doesn't have to attend Cliffside or get it on the Internet to know. He knows. He's known for quite a while. The Bible even says he knows. He can do the math. He can count. He will know exactly what time it is, and he can tell time. And it says in the Bible, Revelation 12, 12, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea when Satan knows exactly how much time he has left. And that's a fascinating verse to me. I'm always fascinated by that because I've got a couple of questions that immediately fly out. Who are the inhabitants of the sea? Woe to the inhabitants of the sea and the earth. Why does Satan, why is Satan attacking the inhabitants of the sea? I always assume that it must be a carnival cruise line. I mean, think about it. Who's in the, who's, who's inhabiting the sea? What does it mean? What is the definition of inhabitants? If you have endured the prior three or four Sunday lectures, you know we've, we've taken a run here at Revelation 17, and we made an obligatory list, and we began the process of sorting through all of the pieces, and we made it to the seven heads, the ten horns, and the ten crowns. I erased it from this week, but you should hopefully remember that. And all we've done is a shallow evaluation to this point. It's the best we can do in the time that we allot. Revelation 17 Began, begins with one of the seven angels of the seven bowls of Revelation 16. Hopefully you remember. And one of those seven angels of the seven bowls comes to John the Apostle to show him the judgment of the other woman. I have the woman who has the male child. That's Israel. I have the other woman. The other woman 
is not the bride, not the virgin, but she is instead the prostitute, the great whore who sits on the scarlet beast, the mother of all abominations. So, got to keep track now of the two different women in Revelation. The church is gone. There is no, no, the church is not discussed in the book of Revelation after chapter 4. Is that a coincidence? No. Church doesn't be mentioned again until Revelation 19. I have no church after chapter 4 until the very end of Revelation. What does that tell you? So the two women that we're talking about are not the church. The church is not available for some reason to discuss in the book of Revelation. Only the woman of the male child and the woman that is the great harlot are discussed. Now, having that aside, she's the mother of all abominations. Abominations is interchangeable with the word adultery, which is a Ten Commandment word. I could call it the mother of all adulteries and be perfectly acceptable. The woman is the origin of the adulteries, which immediately, again, to repeat, it takes me right to the Ten Commandments. The prohibition against adultery. When God uses abominations or adulteries, he is describing paganisms, idolatry. That's why this is why the Antichrist is called the idolatry shepherd or the pagan shepherd in Zechariah 12. The worship of things. That's idolatry. We are things. Angels are things. Things are not to be worshipped. We are not to worship other things. Why not? God prohibits it. Why does he prohibit it? What's the harm in praying to a football, which is being done today mostly, or anything else? I had a friend, just to frustrate, he had a pastor that would come and visit him. And we shared an apartment together. We were young men. By young, I mean 18 or so. And he had a little monkey head made out of a coconut. And he... For the fun of it, he put it in his closet and he made a little platform for it and he hung things around it. I don't remember how he did it, but whenever that pastor that annoyed him would come over to visit him, he would always take him and show him his idol that he would pray to uh, just for fun. He thought it was very funny. That pastor did not think it was funny. He thought it was serious. And so he condemned him to the monkey coconut god. But that made me understand, even as a young man, that this was apparently a very serious thing to some people, and I got interested in it. And here I am, right? We're not supposed to worship manufactured stuff. We're not supposed to. He says, I'm spirit. I'm not a thing. You are a thing. We are things. Don't worship other things. Mankind, however, is desperate to worship things. Anything. Everything, all things, whether they be living things or rocks or trees or animals or insects, dirt, water, there's nothing that man will exclude from worship. Look around. It's what man does. Don't worship things. What is the first thing that we do? We go worship things. 
We covet things. God calls this adultery. He calls it an abomination. It's evil. It's wickedness. Again, why is this wickedness and evil? My buddy thought it was a joke. He wasn't really worshiping the coconut. He was pretending. The point of all of this, yes, there is a point. The culmination, the height of this worshiping of things, this idol worship, this idolatry, as you know, is the abomination that makes desolate. So there is an adultery that makes desolation. That is the end, if you will, the final. Matthew 9.27, I'm sorry, Daniel 9.27, Matthew 24.15, Second Thessalonians 2.4. There is an adultery that makes or brings desolation. And this Revelation 17 harlot woman is the mother of all of these idolatries that lead to the final abomination, the final desolation. She's the mother of the perversions, of all perversions in Revelation 17, all apostasies, and she is sitting on the red scarlet beast, and John is shown her. And that red scarlet beast is going to be the one, the son of perdition, who reveals that all of these abominations that have come before have a purpose. And these perversions end, or they finish, or they terminate, if you will, at the abomination that makes desolate. What that is, is the idle shepherd doing something in the Holy of Holies. We'll discuss this as the week goes, or the weeks come along. Mostly what he does is declare himself to be creator God. And people worship him. He is the final thing worshiped. And God calls that profoundly wicked. And this is the mark of the scarlet the beast, the final adultery, the ultimate adultery, the worship of the man of sin. Note that that's what he's called because he is a created being. I emphasized last Sunday the knowingness of all of this, the willfulness, the clarity of this final adultery. Everyone knows Satan is. Everyone knows who Satan is and they know that Satan exists. There is no controversy. There is no one who doesn't know that Satan is behind the man of sin. No, that Satan is uh, the one who has brought out of the abyss the, the red scarlet beast. And that's a redundancy, the red scarlet beast. The Antichrist is known. Everyone knows Satan. Everyone knows the Antichrist. If you know that it is Satan, and if you know it is the Antichrist, therefore, by logical extension, Christ has to also be known. I can't know Satan, and I can't know the Antichrist without also knowing Christ. God, therefore, must be known. So I have this choice going on in the book of Revelation, or in the tribulation, in the time of Jacob's trouble. I have this uh, Satan Antichrist, and I have... Christ, God, which is, of course, the same. And they're choosing. And they're choosing on the basis of Revelation 13.4. Remember that? Hopefully. Revelation 13.4 is when the Antichrist recovers from death, a mortal wound to the head. 
and the world marvels. And they worship Satan because of it. Again, why did they worship Satan? Satan obviously had something to do with this. How did it happen? In any event, they worship Satan and then they worship the Antichrist. So this choice occurs. They know who Satan is. They know who the Antichrist is. Everybody understands there is no one who is oblivious. There is a purposeful, willful decision to choose the Antichrist over the Christ. And again, no no ignorance here. Nobody is, is doing it without full understanding. Has this kind of choice been made before? On one side, I have the Antichrist. On the other side, I have the Christ. Or I have a type of the Antichrist, and I have the Christ. When Christ was crucified, what did Israel choose? Did they choose Christ to be king, or did they choose somebody else to be king? They chose Barabbas. When the Shekinah glory is on above the throne, if you will, above the mercy seat, uh, in the Holy of Holies, did Israel choose the God himself to be king, or did they choose Saul to be king? This choice has been made many times. It always is. Did they know, just ask yourself this, did Israel see the Shekinah glory? They could actually see the light coming through the covering. It's a bright light. They had the high priest who would witness the Shekinah glory being inside the Holy of Holies. They knew that was God. They knew that was from the pillar of cloud. They knew what the pillar of cloud could do. And yet they still wanted what? Saul, a man. Same thing. In case you think this is unprecedented. Now, today it is fortuitous that we are on are in the feast day of trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, today. Again, there are two observed days. They observe the two days because of uncertainty. Rosh Hashanah is applicable to Revelation 17 because it has themes associated with it, and all as do all the feast days. Rosh Hashanah. Let me start making a new list. I'm leaving the world empire and the Antichrist up here in two lists because we're going to get to that. So that has nothing to do with Rosh Hashanah right now. Rosh Hashanah, we would say, we would say uh, trumpets, feast of trumpets. Um, it has... It has this first most prominent theme of an awakening. So they see the feast day of trumpets will be associated with an awakening blast. And that awakening, of course, is a resurrection blast. The awakening directly linked to resurrection. So Rosh Hashanah has that theme. Another of its themes is the coronation Of the king. So, whenever a king is coronated, so you might also call that the enthronement. I don't know if there's an E and two E's in enthronement, three E's in enthronement. 
Maybe there are. I'm going with three E's. Also, there's an opening of books. Those are the, the probably the primary themes. That would be Daniel 7. Let me give you that. 9 through 10. Let's go ahead and read that last theme as it speaks to Revelation 13.4, which is where we pretty much left off last week, excuse me, for burping during the sermon into the microphone. Fortunately, we have highly skilled technical staff that will delete or enhance the burping depending on the nature of the audience. We're not sure which kind of audience we have. It could go either way. Why does he have any audience, you ask? It's a mystery to me. I think uh, we're personified by people like uh, Norman and, and, uh, and Sharon from Texas, for example. Okay, Daniel 7, 9 through 10. I watched till thrones were put in place. So, this is an enthronement. And the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. And the hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels a burning fire. A fiery steam issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. Rosh Hashanah. As you can imagine, these two verses are a mountain. It's an absolute mountain here. The Ancient of Days is described as he is also characterized in Revelation 1, 13 through 14. So you can go to Revelation 1, 13 and 14, uh, and you can see that the Ancient of Days is Jesus Christ himself. Unmistakably, no dispute, the wording is nearly identical. So who I read of in Revelation 1 through 14, identified as Christ by John, I see described perfectly in uh, Daniel 7, 9 through 10. Having said that, this incredible title, Ancient of Days, is only here in the book of Daniel and only in chapter 7 of the book of Daniel where it is used three times, which I would expect. Daniel 7.9, Daniel 7.13, Daniel 7.22. It's the only place you find this title, the Ancient of Days. Though you find the description of him identically in Revelation 1.14. Oh, as an aside for those of you who ask, the meaning of Son of Man. Remember, Christ calls Himself Son of Man all the time. Son of Man is... Uh, and He continually referred to Himself as the Son of Man. He did so because He wanted to direct you and me and anyone who would hear that to Daniel 7. 
Ancient of Days, as well as Ezekiel's prophecies. So those two things are on the table whenever you see Son of Man, the prophecies of Ezekiel and the Son of Man as it is applicable to the Ancient of Days title. Daniel 7 establishes Christ as the Ancient of Days as well as his place inside the triune Godhead. We'll go over this and more so in the weeks to come. Uh, uh, to repeat, Son of Man is interchangeable with Ancient of Days when Christ uses it. But also, Ancient of Days is applicable to the triune nature of the Godhead. So all of them could be called and are called Ancient of Days, which means we're never going to get a full understanding of it. The title is beyond our grasp. As soon as you bring the triunity of God into play, then we have no capability of understanding it. We just know it's true. Anyway, notice the high points of what we read. A thrones, thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days is seated. The enthronement of Christ, a Rosh Hashanah context. The Ancient of Days is being seated on the feast day of trumpets. His robe is pure white. Isaiah 6 talks about this robe, what it looks like, how big it is. Why is this happening? You know it's going to end up with him opening books. What is he doing? What's being described here? What event is this? When does it happen in history? The hair of the king is pure white. His throne is a fiery flame. That's Shekinah glory. Here it is again. I know this is. He is the I am of the burning bush, right? He is the I am over the mercy seat. This is the Ezekiel 1 description as well. The wheels, the cherubim, a burning fire. The steam is fire. There's thousands of thousands ministering to him. Who is ministering to him that is thousands and thousands? Thousands and thousands is a Hebrew idiom, meaning an uncountable number. So I have an uncountable number ministering to him. Who, is, who do you suspect that is? By the way... I'm doing pretty good. My goal, of course, is if I go through an entire sermon without a single unspeakable term, the words that must not ever be uttered. I got a great letter from a gentleman that gave it that title. It's very funny. Mark, I think. If I go through a whole lecture without a mark in the word that shall never be uttered box, then free pizza for me. Free pumpkin rolls for me. Free Kentucky Fried Chicken all for me. So I am certainly motivated to accomplish it. You, of course, not so much, which is how we do this. Because if one slips by, I don't want to be inappropriately rewarded without true. I don't want a participation trophy. I really want to earn it. I have a lot of fun every time I go to the gas station. They have a free reward. And it always says, you have earned a free reward. And I go, you cannot earn a free reward. It's not possible. Nothing's free but the grace of God, I tell them. And they look at me like, and they go, you're right. This is not a free reward. There's no such thing. I cannot earn it. Anyway, it gives me an opportunity to talk about 
in interferometry and those kinds of things, substance dualism, which I take. The wheels, the cherubim, a burning fire, Ezekiel 1, the steam is fire. Thousands and thousands, Hebrew idiom for uncountable. I'm going to make the case that this is the angelic host. Ten thousands of ten thousands reinforces this. This is billions and billions. So a greater number. The court now is in session. So I have a court. The angels are there and there are billions and billions there. What is the court going to do here? The, the judge of all things is in session. He has come and, set and seated himself. This is John 5.22. And he opens these books. So whatever this is, we need these books to do it, and it's happening on Rosh Hashanah. It's not well known in the Christian church community that Rosh Hashanah is also called Yom Hadin. So I'll put it over here. The Din, you might recognize, is a reference to the tribe of Dan um, as well. Every feast day has a corresponding tribe. Rosh Hashanah corresponds to uh, the tribe of Dan. Okay, Jordan. Remember what Jordan means? It means judgment. Yom Yaden, day of judgment. Jordan, river. River, judgment, going into the Dead Sea. Descender, death, judgment. That's why Christ, of course, made sure that he went beneath the water in that river. So, there's some more, there's another theme. There's a judgment theme. So we now know that this is the day of judgment. This is the day, according to the traditions of the Jewish commentators. Whenever I say Jewish commentators, you go, uh oh, let's be careful. Let's see what they have to say. We'll take, it, we'll take what they have to say, but we will be careful. But according to the traditions of the Jewish commentators, this is the day that God would call his court order and all men would stand before him. All men. The Jewish commentators take note the seating of the court here in Daniel 7, 9, 10 and the books being opened by God and they thus conclude this is, this is being done on Rosh Hashanah. It fulfills the themes. And the, and the Jews believe, so I have to erase all of this part now, the Jews believe they have figured out how many books there are. And they believe that there are three books. The Book of Remembrance. Remembrance. I almost had to go to my notes to see if I spelled it right. I'm not good at spelling. I think I did right. They also believe that there is a book of the righteous. And then a book of the wicked. That's how they see this. 
Now, there is some validity to remembrance for sure. We'll go to that in a second. The thief on the cross who pleaded with Christ to remember me. He said, remember me. He was declaring right there that Christ was the one who remembers all men. Which means Christ is who? He's the Ancient of Days of Daniel 7. So the thief on the cross said, you are the rememberer of Genesis 13. Might be 14. Check me out. He said, you're the one, the possessor of all things, who remembers all things. But also, you are the Ancient of Days. And you're the one that's going to sit on the throne and all, all of humanity will be before you when you open the book on the feast day of Rosh Hashanah. So that thief had a lot of things figured out, did he not? That's why he's saved. He's declaring Christ to be God, the, the rememberer of all things, omniscient God, the one who sits on the fiery throne, the one who opens the books. Keep in mind the Jewish commentators not reliable, so we need to search the word of God. Probably ought to start at Malachi 3.16. Why did the children name the son Malachi? Because, or the grandson, because they knew about Malachi 3.16. At least that's my story. Uh, Whenever you see one of these 3.16s, you've heard me say this a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago or so. Uh, The 3.16s are so cool. Let me. Uh, always remember John 3.16. Everybody does. But Revelation 3.16. First Timothy 3.16. Joshua 3.16. The Jordan from Adam. Second Peter 3.16. Genesis 3.16. Ezekiel 3.16. Job 3.16. You, you spend some time doing 3.16s that will stun you. Well, here we have Malachi 3.16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. So these are people who fear the Lord. Who are they? Pick a book. And the Lord listened and heard them. Who are they? Pick a book. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. So we've learned something about the book of remembrance. I think that's quite helpful. Let's now go to Psalm 6928. I'll put these on the board, except we'll run out of time, as we always do. That's the plan here, is to always run out of time. 6928. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be righteous. Or, or, I'm sorry. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. So we can... The righteous are not written with the wicked, and somebody can be blotted out from a book. The book of remembrance is for those who fear God and meditate on His Word. And these two have a blotted out issue. If it's correct that there are three books. So Psalm 69, 28. Here is a book of the living. A book from which those who add iniquity to iniquity. Did I read that yet? I did not. Verse 27. Let me back up again. Where am I? 
I'm losing my place. What have I done? I don't know. I guess I'll move on and try to figure out what I did. It's an interesting point. But I don't have any attribution. So let's, let's delete it until next week. Is this, this book that has this blotting out, is, is this the same book as the book of remembrance or is it a separate book? And then as, uh, Exodus 20, uh, 32, 32 through 33 is perhaps that's the most known of all of these book verses. So let's go there next. And Yet now, if you will forgive their sins, but if not, I pray, blot me out of the book which you have written. That is Moses saying to God. This is a theotic, a dramatic theodicy where Moses is portraying Christ. And he says, yet now, if you will forgive their sins, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. So, we have this blotting again. There is a book, and somebody gets blotted out of it. Which book is it? God has a book. He blots out names. Moses offered to substitute himself for Israel. So great was Moses' devotion to Israel that he said, Take me, blot me out. That is a Genesis 15 language, example. The take me of Genesis 15. Deuteronomy 18.15 example as well. Moses is portraying Jesus Christ. Moses' willingness to place himself between judgment and Israel. He said, blot me out. What does blot me out mean? You're not in the book. What's the consequences of not being in the book? And this perhaps is the greatest act of typology in the Old Testament. Some present Adam and some say Isaac, some say Joseph. But this Moses statement is absolutely extraordinary. Blot me out. He was serious. Save Israel. Blot me out. Did he know what blot me out meant? Absolutely he did. Anyway, we could include Nehemiah's prayer to be remembered in Nehemiah 13, 14. But let's, uh, let's go through the ones that I think have more precedence. And that would be uh, uh, Psalm 139. I know we're going back and forth, aren't we? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> okay. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. This is where you are formed, for you have formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you. I am fearful, fearfully and awesomely, uniquely made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written. Revelation now, we're on our way to Revelation. Start at 3 5. 
He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. What does overcome mean? Some will say that means holding on to your salvation until you die. Can you hold on to your salvation? No. I make the comment that if it was a football Satan would fumble it before you, or take it from you, you would fumble it before you actually even touched it. So he has to give it to you and then cocoon you in it in order for you to keep it. So he keeps it for you. What does overcome mean then? Uh, Revelation 13.8. It doesn't mean loss of salvation, obviously. What does it mean? Revelation 13.8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. All who dwell on the earth is tribulational, will worship the dragon, will worship the Antichrist. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb. So we have the Lamb's book of life now. The book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. 17.8. That's our, or exactly where we are, right? 17.8. Actually fits into the lecture, isn't it? And that fantastic uh, professionalism. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. That's the Lamb's book of life again, isn't it? Now, Revelation 20. Oh, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. So, we have a relationship between the mark of the beast, the marveling of the beast, the worshiping of the beast, and the blotting out. Revelation 20, verse 15. I'm going to back up to verse 11 and read 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne. Where are we now? How do we start this discussion on the books? At a fiery throne. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. So I have a seated him back in there on the day of Rosh Hashanah, aren't I? Daniel 7. From whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great. Let me repeat that. And I saw the dead small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. Who opens the books? God, the Ancient of Days. Thief on the cross, you're the one that opens the books. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. So, oops, I got books, and I got another book. So we'll go ahead and add it, just for fun. And we have also the Lamb's book. What do you suppose is the question that we're going to have to deal with? How many books do we have? Can you all see that? How many books do we have? Which book is which book? Yes, ma'am. Yes, book of living, I would say to you, book of life. I would say so. Uh, We'll get to that too. Let me finish. The sea gave up the dead 
Oh, wait, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I skipped ahead. Which is the and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which was written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and the death and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Okay, you got it? How many books we have? What's in each book? Who was in which book? Which book are you in? Are you in more than one book? Essentially, again, how many books? What's the purpose of each book? Well, we can, we can make some determinations. There is a book that records the life of everyone. Everyone that has come into existence. When do you come into existence? This is a simple discussion. He says, I knew you before you were formed. He says the books are from the foundation of the earth, before the foundation of the earth. That means they're before what? They're before creation. They're before time. So when did you come into existence? Who has to know you for you to come into existence? So when did he know you? Now, did you know you? Did you know me? You still don't. <laughs> Neither do I. But he knew us. His knowing us brings us into existence. Existence is a complicated thing. What's existence made of? It's made of him. There is a book that records the life of everyone, their existence. There is a book that records the things and the deeds and or the works and of the dead. Every word spoken, every thought thought. That is clearly an omniscience. Uh, whenever there is a book that has that, in, in order for that book to have it, the person who wrote it into the book must be omniscient, Jeremiah 17.10. Christ says, God says, I, I know everything. He tracks it all. How much memory does he have compared to your home computer? Information cannot be destroyed. He has it all. But who exactly are these dead here? Dead, dead, dead. It says dead four times. I saw the dead and the dead. She gave up the dead. Death and Hades delivered up the dead. All kinds of dead. Who are these dead? Note that they're called what? Here's, here's why you pay the big money to come here. They're called dead. Why are they called dead? Who else, what, what else could they have been called? They're not called the living. They're called the dead. Why? That's a solemn description. I don't want to be called dead. I wish to be called living. There is another book of life, the Lamb's book of life, as we re re revealed in Revelation 17.8. The book of life does not have every name. So who are those whose names are not written into the book of life? Ask the inverse again. Whose names are written into this book? What's the criteria? What determines if someone is written into this book? Remember, this seems to be a binary choice on the earth. Choose Christ or choose Antichrist. 
If you choose the Antichrist, you are blotted out and you are not in the book of the living. The Lamb's book. Choose good, choose the good shepherd, or choose the, the evil shepherd. Choose God. Choose good. Well, some people look at this choice and say the evil one is the good one and the good one is the evil one. Will some do that? All of them will. Isaiah 5.20. If you choose the evil one, you are saying the good one is evil. You have it upside down and backwards. Those who choose the evil, those who call the evil good, those who marvel at the scarlet beast who declares that none can kill him. Revelation 13.4. None is like the beast, they say. What they mean is, there isn't anybody like this. He has power over death. He can resurrect himself. Can he? They marvel after him and they worship Satan because of this. They are the ones who are not written in the book. It says so. Key lesson. Don't marvel at the beast. At the scarlet beast. Do not look upon evil with wonder or amazement or admiration. Last question on the books for today. Figure out which book it is that the names are blotted out in. Now, really fast. One page to go, so don't panic. Revelation 17, I think, will help you. We'll read 9 through 14. Here is the mind which has wisdom. Let me read 8 again. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition and those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Those who marvel over him are, are not in the book of life. Why not? What, what are they amazed by? What do they think? Whatever they're marveling at, they're not in the book of life. Now, 9 through 14. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There is also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has yet to come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. The ten horns, only two people in all the Bible are called the son of perdition. One of them, of course, is the Antichrist. The other one is Judas. No one else is called this but those two. Begs the question, doesn't it? The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no... And by the way, Christ... Oh, there goes my... Cont- I was on, oh, no, I'd already lost. Christ, God himself, calls Ju- Judas the son of perdition. Does Christ know the, name, the meaning of the name son of perdition? Is he being, is it hyperbola? Does God speak in hyperbolic terms? Did he know that Judas was the son of perdition? Because that's what he called him. Did he say he liked the son of perdition? He did not. He called him the evil. The evil. That's God. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they but they receive authority for one hour as king of the be- kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. Duh. I wonder why that's not in there. For 
There must be a good reason. For he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Then he said to me, the waters at which you saw were, where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman who you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And, of course, that great city is Babylon. So, once again, we find verses that we read that will apply to two different things. I was talking to Bill the Cow uh, on Supper Dave, I think, earlier before, and before we started today. It's so important that when you read the book of Revelation, you recognize where to put everything, the assignment, the slotting. We find these verses that are going to apply to the kingdom of the Antichrist, his empire. He establishes a world empire. Sometimes it appears that the world, the empire and he are, are not separable, but they are. They are referred to, both of them are referred to as the beast. You have to know one of them sometimes is talking about his, his territory, his landmass that he's conquered, or his empire, Babylon. The other is talking about the person himself. When you've got that worked out, uh, you will be well on your way. So we're going to find the verses that apply to the kingdom of the Antichrist, his empire, the final world empire. So this is the last world empire. Christ comes and sits on his throne. There is no empire after this one. This is the last empire. And verses that apply to the person. So which is which? Again, scarlet beast territory, scarlet beast person. The seven mountains are the seven world empires of the post-flood history. So it says there are seven mountains. Those are seven of the world empires that occurred post-flood. There's some disagreement as to who they are. Book of Daniel provides more information. Next week we'll get on to that. Without any objection, the Roman Empire is the one that is at the time that John wrote. So we have Rome. The Roman Empire was one of the seven. It said five are fallen. So we have five that have fallen. One is. So the Roman Empire is number, it's hard math, six. <laughs> Nobody disagrees with that that I could find. Oh, there's somebody that does, but fortunately they, I don't know them and they don't know me. The one that exists at the time John the Apostle wrote the book of Revelation is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is today. We're still in the Roman Empire phase of the seven empires. It's divided into two parts, east and west, as I talked about last week. It went to Charlemagne. It went to the czars of Russia. Caesar, Caesar. That's what we've got. So the, the five world empires have fallen. Rome is the sixth. And the beast empire will be the seventh. So I can erase this. So when you see... That, you know that the seventh empire applies to the beast's world empire system. And it says, uh, and that's the last. The beast himself will come and he must continue for a short time. So it says the beast comes and he must continue for a short time. 
Now that's interesting, don't you think? Let me repeat that word. He's going to come continue for a short time. You can make the case that that applies to the empire as well, but I, I, I think it applies to the person. I'll make that case in the weeks to come. It's also said of Satan that he will continue. So I can add Satan up here. Satan also continues for a short time. He knows that he has but a short time to continue. Revelation 12.12 The Antichrist must continue for a short time. What is the implication of that? He comes and he continues. It implies there's an interruption. The beast is the seventh king. He's also the eighth, it says. He is the seventh king and he's also the eighth king. How can you be the seventh king and the eighth king? Is it, does it apply over here? You want to put it in this slot? It is the seventh empire and it's also the eighth empire? I don't think that's defendable. So we will utilize the holy blue dry erase, eraser, not a redundancy. He's the seventh and he's the eighth. How can he be the seventh and the eighth? You can speculate here. I think uh, that it means the Antichrist and the Red Dragon caused the world to choose them. He is the seventh and the eighth. Revelation 13, 3 and 4. This is the mortal wound. <laughs> Did Becky guess right? Not a guess. Oh. <laughs> I just saw exult- exultation coming out of Bill the Cow there. So that's cool. <laughs> This is the mortal wound. Somehow the death resurrection of the Antichrist figures into this. This is what causes the world to choose a thing instead of God. And that's what we will that's where we'll start next week, figuring out how this happens and of course why it happens, the impact that it has, and all of that. Musicians, being intuitive, are starting to come forward and they will want us all to rise and be dismissed.